0: Good morning and welcome to Axis Church if you're with us for the first time. We're continuing in a new series called Faith Over Fear. And you might look at our cultural moment and say, John, I think you're a couple of months behind behind the trends here. I mean, sure, 10 weeks or so back, I was feeling really, really, really scared about the future and what this season would hold. But isn't the crisis over now? Aren't restrictions being lifted? Aren't uh, all the relevant KPIs going okay? Well, if that's your story, if you look at the current COVID crisis throughout the world and think, it's all back there. For me, it's all in the review mirror. Well, then this series is perfect for you right now. You have two great opportunities. One is reflection. I mean, the idea of life is never to just get through a season and that be it. We're supposed to notice not only what happens to us, but what happens in us. So don't miss this moment to reflect and look back. And from a spiritual perspective, the question might simply be this, Lord, what were you trying to teach me through this season? I mean, it was unusual. It was unexpected. It's it's things I've never faced before. There was times where I felt stressed and anxious and worried about my future. What was I supposed to learn through all of that? Otherwise, uh, Philosophers would be right. The only thing we learn from history, can you finish the sentence, is that we don't learn from history. That's a really foolish place for us to land here. The next great opportunity this series provides is for you. If you look and say, this whole COVID stress is behind me, I can't relate to it at all. Well, then the other opportunity for you right now is to bank our strength for future days. You know, it's too late. Once you've got feet on the mountain, to go, whoa, I don't know if I've got the muscle to get up here. It's too late then to discover that. You've got to build strength in before the felt need for it was there. And this is the opportunity we have with a series like this to instill truths, to take in the strength of God's word at a time like this. If you feel like you can't use it today, well, then most certainly bank it for tomorrow. You're going to need it at some point in time. 2020 is only halfway done. There's plenty of mountains still to come. And let's always be people that live and learn. I want to speak to you a message today about when God takes time. Question, have you noticed a discrepancy between God's schedule and yours? Let me put some spice in that question. Have you noticed a major discrepancy between God's schedule and yours? God seems to take a long time to arrive on the scene, much of the time. Awaiting heaven to come and act can seem at times like watching grass grow. It just takes ages to see God come and move and act in a situation. And sometimes church folks can come along and offer the most unhelpful encouragement. They say things like this, well, don't worry, you can always trust in God's timing. Well, can you? I don't give you permission to punch that person in the nose, but it is frustrating. Sometimes things are better left unsaid, like your friend George, whose nose is humongous. George is probably well aware of the size of his nose, but it's unhelpful to point it out. Or your other friend, Harry, who's got this bald spot and he's only 29, for goodness sake. What's that doing there? He, un- he realises it's there and sometimes things are better left unsaid. Like this statement of trusting God's timing when someone's hanging off a cliff by their fingertips, it can be heard as not a blessing, but Kind of an insensitive statement. Few things will turn out as challenging as walking with the Lord, as having to interact with His timing, which seems so far different to ours. There's times where you feel like you're pressing hard into God. And I'm not speaking theologically now. I'm speaking emotionally. But the emotion is real because the theology is perplexing. See, the Bible does teach that God is all-knowing and all-powerful. And the kicker is he actually cares about us human beings. Now, if he was only all-knowing, he could see the future, he could see what was going on and all-powerful, all, all, uh, but he didn't care, that would be okay. We could understand that. Or if he, if he lacked the ability to intervene, we could understand that. But those three together, that is all-knowing, all-powerful, and he cares are hard to reconcile if he cares. Why hasn't he intervened sooner? Why hasn't he come to aid and answer my prayers from yesterday? Maybe you're that person who needs a job so desperately right now and you've been praying, you've been seeking God and the funds are drying up and you're getting to the desperate stage and you wonder what's next. Maybe you're that person who's had a medical diagnosis and you've prayed Others have prayed. The elders of the church have prayed. There's nothing you can think of left to do. But yet still, the condition persists. Maybe you're that person who awaits a relationship and you're keeping yourself pure. You're waiting on God. You're not out playing the field. You're not being immoral. And yet another birthday passes by. Friends, let's be real. This waiting period... It's tough. It's tough to deal with. It's a serious faith tester. And God could show up and go just like that. And for whatever reason, sometimes we are left waiting. Let me give you a big idea to contend with before we get to our reading this morning from the scripture in 1 Samuel 13. We must connect a moment of madness with the season of trial that surrounds it. What do I mean? We always notice the headline story. We notice the crazy moment. We notice the guy who's in the news because he's caught with a street prostitute and he makes the front page of the newspaper, the politician or the CEO or the religious leader. Some folks get a lot of satisfaction out of highlighting that sort of human error. I don't want to minimise that behaviour, it's destructive. But there's always more to the story than the headline. What led up to that moment of madness? If that person was a committed family man until that day, there was something in between A, committed family man, and Z, out on the street, that led up to that moment. There's a story underneath it. And it's good for us to sometimes stand back and have a little bit, a bit of empathy at what lies underneath the story, there's always more to the story than one crazy moment. Even for people of faith, there's a drift that goes on over time. Sometimes it's a subtle drift, one step at a time. We can move ourselves progressively away from God if we're not careful and end up in a moment of madness. So I invite you this morning to go with me to 1 Samuel 13. And yes, we're online and no, no one will notice whether your Bible's open or not, but I encourage you to open your Bible. It's such a healthy practice to open and read and let God speak to you personally. 1 Samuel 13 records a spectacular fall, a moment of madness. There's lessons to be gained here from Israel's first leader. His name is Saul. We're going to learn what not to do when we're left in waiting. The context here of 1 Samuel 13, for those new to the Bible, is Israel is God's chosen people. Saul is their new king. Having been recently appointed that, here's the thing. God never wanted them to have a king. He wanted to be their king. He wanted them to be distinct from all other nations, but they insisted and he gave them what they wanted. An interesting reflection to explore on another day is of the 400 leaders in the Bible, only 100 finished well. So a 25% strike rate of good finishes. We as a society continue to get surprised by leaders who have a bad turn, statistically, we should be more shocked probably by leaders that stay faithful. Anyway, back to Saul. First year in office appears to go largely uneventful. Nothing much is recorded there. Enter young prince, Jonathan. It's the first mention of the king's son. He starts with a bang as a winner here in 1 Samuel 13 and continues pretty much as that through the biblical narrative. If you're having a son and wondering what to call him, you've found the perfect name. You've found the ideal name. You're welcome. What a fine name this is. Seemingly, without being prompted, Jonathan goes into battle and wins. Verse three says so. The issue is that was just round one. The Philistine army are aroused and they come back in force and pin King Saul and his men into a place of retreat, a dangerous spot, which we'll read about, and fear takes over. 1 Samuel 13, when Saul was 30 years old, he became king, and he reigned for 42 years. Saul selected 3,000 special troops from the army of Israel and sent the rest of the men home. He took 2,000 of the chosen men with him to Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. The other thousand went with Saul's son, Jonathan, to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. Soon after this, Jonathan attacked and defended the garrison of Philistines at Geba. The news spread quickly among the Philistines. So Saul blew his ram's horn throughout the land saying, Hebrews, hear this, rise up in revolt. All Israel heard the news that Saul had destroyed the Philistine garrison at Geba and that the Philistines now hated the Israelites more than ever. So the entire Israelite army was summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Now this next detail isn't one I'm willing to go to war over. It's enough that we're reading about war here. Just a little thing to note as we come to verse 5, some translations will say 30,000. And there's conjecture here over whether the Hebrew word translate 3,000 or 30,000. Others will say the second half of verse 5 confirms that there's Can't be more chariots than there are riders, so it must be 3,000. Hence, some versions have gone with that in verse 5 here. The Philistines mustered an army of 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and as many warriors as the grains of sand on the seashore. They camped at Michmash, east of Beth Haven. The men of Israel saw what a tight spot they were in, and because they were hard-pressed by the enemy, they tried to hide in caves, thickets, rocks, holes, and cisterns. Some of them crossed the Jordan River and escaped into the land of Gad and Gilead. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal and his men were, notice this, trembling with fear. Now, this fear isn't difficult to comprehend. They are surrounded. Literal interpretation of the end of verse 7 is they are shuddering in terror. Their teeth are knocking together. They're they're scared stiff. And they needed Saul to step up and lead And and he does. By rightly awaiting for God's prophet, God's appointed man, Samuel, to step on the scene. In waiting for Samuel, Saul is waiting for God. Verse 8, Saul waited there seven days for Samuel. Notice that, seven days. As Samuel instructed him earlier, but Saul, sorry, Samuel still didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away. So he demanded... Bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. Now, if you're under 30, you need an old person to translate this next statement for you. He missed it by that much. Because look what verse 10 says Saul jumped the gun. And just as he was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet him and welcome him. Samuel said, what is it that you've done? Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me and you didn't arrive when you said you would and the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. Verse 13 says, how foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it? The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom must end. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. When God takes time. We're going to explore this story real quick through the lens of Saul. Saul. Today. He's the main player in the story anyway. So with the time we have left, we're going to concentrate on all of this account from Saul's point of view. Now imagine when Saul first heard of his son's achievement, Jonathan. He's super proud until he realises Jonathan has left an impression, all right, on the enemy. He stirred up the hornet's nest and team Philistine muster a mighty army and come down in position to strike. And in view of this vast army bearing down, we get it. Saul is terrified. Verse 6 and 7 tell the story. They hide anywhere and everywhere, trembling with fear. They they don't have a well-positioned, sophisticated fort or tunnel system going. They're just in caves and bushes and holes. Anything would do, just get out of the line of fire. Staying out of sight is the necessary aim of the game, or else they'd die. I don't know if you've ever had a scenario like that where you've been hunted down. I recall a bunch of uh, six foolish youth, about 14, 15 years old, taking you to the streets around midnight on their BMXs, one night in a country town, not sure what they were hoping to achieve other than trouble. And there they are, out in the streets after midnight, on their bikes, and one of them, and it wasn't this one, but one of them yells out at a car of men who drive by. Some smart remark that certainly most upset the men in that car. Now, that car began chasing us. And then we are fleeing on bikes without a hope of getting away, it seemed. And I remember going down a dark alley and hiding right down the back of that alley. And I could hear this car screaming around the streets trying to find us. And they stopped at the alley where I was. And they got out of the car and they come running down the alley. And I had a thought, this is it. This is it. And they stopped somewhere halfway down the alley, not right at the very end around the corner where I was. They stopped right before me and turned around and got back in the car thinking nobody was there. Well, I can tell you, I got on my deadly treadly bicycle and got home quick smart to a place of safety. I cannot begin to describe to you those few moments of dread when that car pulled up. And the moral of the story, if you're young and listening to this, is stay with your parents. That's the safe place to be. Saul has an enemy army bearing down and he lies in wait. I waited for a few minutes in that place. He waits seven long days for God's man Samuel to show up. And he waits in submission to God, for God's intervention on the scene, for the prophet to come and lead the nation towards the next step, which was the God-ordained way it should happen. Can I point out the obvious at this moment? Seven days is a long time to wait while you're under attack. You get that, right? Apart from the evident fears that we would be feeling. How about everyday practicalities? How about eating and sleeping and, and using the toilet? I mean, all of those things are compromised. they are all become dangerous. This is a week of genuine panic, of high alert. Any lapse of concentration would prove fatal. And Saul and his men wait on God to bring the prophet to their aid. And in waiting for Samuel, they wait for God. Trying to follow procedure, And at this point in time, my hat is off to Saul, like seven days is ages. And the question that bubbles to the surface for me is, Lord, don't you get the sense of urgency in this situation? Probably like you, Saul can't fathom any good reason to wait longer. And his logic is threefold. Verse 11, the troops are scattering. The prophets nowhere to be found. The Philistines are bearing down. I mean, some holy roller will read those three factors and go, excuses, excuses, excuses. Saul would reply, reasons. Reason one, my men were dispersing. Reason two, I can't locate Samuel. Reason three, shots from the enemy are starting to ping the trees around about. I mean, Aren't I just doing what anyone would do, what any logical person would do under the circumstances? The pressure Saul felt squeezed him into making a call. It proved out to be a call of poor judgment and the implications were huge. It was a moment of madness and it cost him his royal position as king. Verse 14 confirms that God stripped him of that position on that day. It becomes apparent that some decisions in life carry extra weight. I've heard it said that we're just two or three big decisions away from ruin at any given time. And that's probably right. It's a truth that ought to drive us towards humility. 1 Samuel 13, however, shows a guy who gets just one shot. Makes one mistake and seemingly loses it all. 1 Samuel 13 to me is beginning to feel a bit ungracious. It's beginning to feel a bit fatalistic. It it feels like the judgment doesn't match the mistake. Like one single moment of madness where Saul took up religious duties that he wasn't authorized to do and what? He loses everything? I want to go into bat for him at this point in time. I feel sorry for him. I mean, we could rewrite this story and make Samuel to be the bad guy here. I mean, isn't Samuel the unresponsive one who should have shown up earlier? Isn't Samuel, isn't he missing the boat? Couldn't have he been the saviour in this story if he'd just been present? Wasn't it Samuel's job to be on the scene when the nation's in crisis? Where's he when you need him? Samuel's the experienced guy. He's the one that's been around the traps. He's the older man here. Saul's the new guy. This is his first rodeo. He doesn't know better. And Samuel, you've left him for dead. You're you're hanging this new king out to dry. What have you been up to? Besides, at the end of the day, hasn't Saul just done what anyone would do in his situation? God's representative here, Samuel, seems harsh, unfair, unfair dogmatic, unless we bring to mind again our big idea. We've got to connect the moment of madness with the context. There's more to notice in the story than the headline, I started by saying. And if we zoom out of this moment of madness to the wider context, we see that God had not actually left Saul in the dark without a word, without a pre-warning. This moment of madness is not without context. There is a backstory. Three chapters earlier, the prophet Samuel had provided the new King Saul with super clear instructions of what was going to happen and what should never happen. Now, does this mean I don't understand Saul's predicament? No, it doesn't. I feel his pain. I hope you do too today. It just means he ought not to have been blindsided by his situation. If we turn back a couple of pages in our Bible to chapter 10, this is what we find. Here's the backstory. Here's the wider context. Samuel said, go down ahead of me. And I will join you there to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. You must wait seven days until I arrive and give you further instructions. Saul failed to wait. Saul jumped the gun. By offering sacrifices, he broke express orders before the seventh day ended. He took matters into his own hands. He got tired of waiting. Waiting is tiring. It can drain us of our faith. And last week we talked about how the enemy of souls jumps in, in those moments of stress. And he, he tries to take yesterday's promises and turn them into today's questions. Hear that again. Yesterday's promises into today's questions. And when he manages to get you and I into that headspace, faith becomes fear and this is what went on here for saul he went from trusting knowing confident samuel was on his way to in the heat of the moment wondering if samuel even remembered he existed the promise of god's arrival through samuel was lost in the face of danger The place I'm going to land today's message is so simple. You're going to go, Jono. is that it? Is that the best you've got? Sermon's been fair until now, but it's just taken a dive. Well, sorry, but here it is in simple terms. Life is a test of trust. Life is a test of trust. Saul's story tells us this, but so did Cesar's earlier that we heard, and Hannah's and Mel's, and so does yours. And this trust test goes beyond 1 Samuel 13, it goes beyond COVID 19. This test of trust is the human story, period. It's your story, it's your challenge today. Will you trust God? We all have that choice to make, and it's particularly challenging when the situation's unfavourable and the comfort level is zero and there's no apparent end in sight. We look into the tunnel and it's just dark and black and we can see no light at all, and we so want some guarantees because the fear is so real we can taste it. In those moments, here's our choice, here's our test. Will we continue to trust God? Saul wasn't rejected as king because he was a lousy person. He was rejected as king because he stopped trusting. And the moment we stop trusting, we become lousy human beings, whether we're kings or preachers or chefs or teachers or architects, designing buildings or those on the ground, making them happen. Whether or not... Our lives are a success in the eyes of God. boils down to this, our capacity to trust him today, to choose faith over fear. The Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's impossible, impossible to please God without faith. Faith, And that sounds intimidating As some of you go, John, does that mean my faith meter has to be 10 out of 10 all the time in order to get God to hear me, to answer any prayers? No, faith isn't a number. It's a relationship. This faith denotes confidence and allegiance and trust. It's about me running into the arms of my heavenly father, jumping in there and saying, Daddy, I don't get what's going on. I don't know how to do this next part. I'm done. I'm out of strength. I'm out of ideas. I'm out of everything. And I need you. And it's that gut level dependence on God that he's after. So don't let the enemy of souls make this a mathematical formula. Like, well, you're only a six out of ten faith person, so God's not paying attention to you. No, 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 no. This is not a business transaction. This is a relationship that God is calling you and I to, today. Verse 14 confirms this of our reading where, where, where God says about the future king, this is what I want, this is what I want, this is what I want. Someone that would be after my heart. Someone that would give me their heart and share life together. So we close in prayer. And this morning, I'm closing for people who think they've blown it who think they've made mistakes and been written off by God. And while we can wander a long way from God, we can. So easy to do. There's always just one step home, saying, Lord, I trust you with my life. I trust you with my life. I trust you with my life. Would you make that decision again today? If you're doing it for the first time, we'd love to hear about it. Make connection with us. Look us up. Thanks for joining us again. Bless you.